you know I'm the stories that sing lady, and that means I'm here to answer all of your questions about how to integrate picture books into your elementary music classroom. So you might have questions like, what kinds of books do I read? Or maybe you're asking, what lesson topics do I pair with those books? Or you might be asking, what kind of lesson ideas can I use to tie books into my normal elements of music lessons? Well, whatever you're asking, you are in luck because this month until June 30th, I am holding a flash sale on my course, Simply Music Skills. This course is designed to teach you what storybooks to use in your music classroom and how to use them to teach music skills and so much more. And I am so excited because this course is on sale for over 80% off. You can take advantage of this special offer of over 80% off by going to storiesthatsing.net forward slash simply music skills. Be sure you get to that link as soon as possible so you can take advantage of this special offer. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get on to the episode. It's the Happy Music Teacher! Are you an elementary music teacher who's frustrated and overwhelmed? I'm Jeanette Shorey, a happy music teacher who loves teaching every day, but it wasn't long ago I was in your shoes. Join me Wednesdays to help you find happy in your music classroom. I'm so excited. In today's podcast, we are featuring Lindsay Lyons, and Lindsay is an educational justice coach who helps schools and districts co-create feminist anti-racial curricula that challenges, affirms, and inspires all students. A former NYC public school teacher, she holds a PhD in leadership and change and is the founder of the blog and podcast Time for Teachership. She believes the secret sauce of educational quality is student voice. And I wanted to have Lindsay on because she and I are are kind of in the same ballpark as far as student voice. That is a driving passion in everything I do as a teacher. And I'm really excited to welcome Lindsay. Hello, Lindsay. Hi, Jeanette. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, me too. I'm I'm very excited to have you. And I'm very excited to be able to feature educators who are just kind of on the cusp of everything that's going on right now. And I have so many questions for you because I really like when I think about social justice, I have a very generalized idea and I'm really excited to sort of delve into that and, you know, just show music teachers because we as music teachers have kind of a puzzle because there's so much going on in the music teacher community songs that that we've found out are really not okay to use and to sing and to play and you know there's just all the things so I'm really excited to have you on and you know help you educate 
the elementary music teachers and and kind of help us out in that area. So um, why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about how you started on this journey? I'm really interested to hear about that. Yeah, I think my parents were teachers. So I think it was inevitable that I ended up as a teacher, even though I was like, I will not be. Um, and, and so my background actually in undergrad was uh, intersectional feminist, like women's studies stuff. And so I really wanted to go down that route. Um, ended up teaching in New York City in an alternative certification program. So kind of first month I had a teacher course was in June. And the first day I was in front of students for student teaching was like in July. So I wow. think it was a big whirlwind. And I realized very quickly the structures that are in place for educators, like teacher prep programs, but also like the policies and the way that we do school are just not set up for success um, for, for teachers or students, to be quite honest. And so I just thought there was like a better way to do it. And luckily, I have been in touch with a number of educators that have kind of helped me see better paths and um, different authors who some of them I've met in person, some of them I haven't, and they've just been kind of like my educational heroes from afar. And so I've kind of learned through a lot of brilliant people doing this work um, to kind of form my own thoughts about how do we do school better? And specifically, how do we elevate student voice? How has that been done well? How has it not been done well? Um, and how do we kind of tap into the brilliance of students to really get them engaged in a way that's like, generative and like justice centered and not like compliance and behavior centered, which I think is sometimes how we use student voice. Yes. Yes. And, and what you're saying so resonates with me because I, I am big on being respectful to everybody, no matter whether they're three years old or they're 30 years old. And I'm, I'm very big on, you know, just listening to and watching my students and seeing what resonates with them. And so that to me was really exciting when you and I first met. And um, we, we need to address that we have been in a mastermind together for probably eight months. And Lindsay and I are gonna be presenting together at um, a conference for middle school teachers in November. So I'm really excited to be working with Lindsay and, um, you know, because we really are so on the same page. So tell us a little bit about, I have such a general idea of what social justice means, and I'm not even sure that my definition in my head is really the actual definition. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think everyone kind of defines it differently for, for themselves and their in their group. But my definition is really one of like intersections. So I think about intersectionality, which is a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw. And she talks about how, um, you know, some of the earliest examples I think about are like, um, we, you know, have in my gender women's studies background, we have like this opportunity for women to come who have been in intimate partner violence situations, right? And, and so we have this opportunity. But is it accessible by public transportation? You know, are we considering class and who are the women that can come in? Um, do we have information um, available readily in multiple languages? So are we in considering people who English is not their first language, right? And so just like that kind of idea of how do we center justice in a way that considers a lot of different identities and not just one. And so I think for me, that's the key difference between, you know, Lindsay as a 22 year old college graduate and like Lindsay as a coach now, um, having learned a lot from people doing this work is like, 
I had a very narrow slice of what I understood to be justice because I just didn't expand my thinking to things like race and disability and um, language and nationality and all of the different things um, that make up who we are. And so I think at the very core of my hope for schools is like, how do we have all students and honestly staff as well and family members who are connected to the schools feel like they 100% belong in who they are is not something that they have to justify to someone. Um, Their rights are not being threatened and they are truly valued for the ideas and identities that they, they bring to the table. That, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it, I feel like the more I learn, the less I know. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like I, every time I hear someone speak about social justice or about inclusivity or, you know, I, growing up as a, a white woman in um, really a very um, homogenous background, you know, there are so many things that I don't know and, and I really don't even have the capacity to understand. So it's really a difficult path, especially for someone, I'm, I'm an older person as well. And, you know, the, the ideas coming up are very different from the ideas that I grew up with and, and just the way that education looks. And so it's, it's a very sort of twisty path to, to take. So what does social justice look like in the classroom? Like, can you give us a couple of examples? Yeah, I think it looks like uh, a lot of different things. And and just to kind of think about my own experience as a student too, because I, I very much connect with what you're saying in terms of I'm a white, I know it's hard to identify as a podcast listener. I'm a white woman as well and grew up in a very white um, Christian fairly monolingual, predominantly English, like speaking place in rural upstate New York. Mm-hmm. And so that context really shaped my experience in school. Most, if not all of my teachers were white, um, all monolingual English speakers. I like, there were some strong, like Christian religious, like tones to like policies and like dress codes and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I reflect on that, I think about how, like, not only students of color who attend the school, but also just myself as a a white person, like the opportunities that I did or didn't have to not only feel a sense of belonging for myself as maybe a girl, for example, I think was one one of the ways that I I think women often experience marginalization or people who are non-binary experience marginalization in the gender dynamic, but also just like how other, how how everyone, right, is being able to experience and see what is valued. So in the mm-hmm. policies, for example, to give some concrete examples, um, we have a, we had a, a school parking lot where, because it's a rural community, many students had to drive. So in high school, there's a student parking lot. There were students who had Confederate flags on their, uh, like, trucks and stuff. Oh, wow. um, Oh yeah. And two, like literally three years ago, uh, my sister works more locally. She still lives kind of in the region and she works with students who are just graduating from high school. And so she met a student, a black student who had said, I went to the administration and I said, this is problematic. I don't feel safe. I don't feel comfortable. And they said, it's a, it's a freedom of speech issue. 
we're going to like ignore that this student Mm. feels very uncomfortable. One of the only black students in the entire district, um, we are going to ignore that student's experience and their lived reality and how they're feeling. And instead we're just going to hide behind this like freedom of speech because it might be easier. It's going to be easier than upsetting the white student who probably is like very, if I had to imagine (laughs) based on like who I knew had those flags on there, is like a, a larger physically intimidating individual perhaps mm-hmm. um, is more vocal, maybe has parents who are more vocal or guardians who are more vocal um, who might be more politically connected in the community, mm-hmm. right? And so we center those voices instead of not. And so that's just one example of like policy, but also curricularly, I think about one teacher. I literally had one teacher who was not born kind of in the area. He was from England. I don't know how he made his way to my small town, but thank goodness he did because he was the only teacher who talked about gender and race issues with us. We talked about their eyes were watching God. So he was a, um, our English teacher. And so we read that book, um, which has African-American vernacular English, which is like not a typically part of the canon of high school English. We talked about Kate Chopin's The Awakening. So about this idea of this woman who was just so fed up with her life. She's willing to walk out into the water, right. And like abandon her child and and husband. And these were like concepts that I had never seen before. I had just never seen anything different from this white heterosexual cisgender male, rich conservative story. Right. Mm -hmm. It it Mm -hmm. represented. And so I just never thought that anyone valued it. Like I thought I was weird for thinking there were other ideas out there. Right. That teacher, unfortunately, very quickly left our school district. I don't oh, know if they're pushed out, but yeah, but like, that's the kind of thing that it takes such uh, political will and like really activism to even do some small thing to advance justice. It's hard, but it's also like, it changed the course of my life and, and helped me be a better teacher. So it's also really valuable. And I, wow, that that's an incredible story. And, and I can so resonate with that because I also grew up in, um, like, I didn't know there was such a thing as a Jewish person until I moved to South Florida, because where I was, everybody was Catholic, everybody was white, all of people of color lived in other neighborhoods, and, you know, to the point, because I'm 58, there were words flying around, negative um, connotations for people of minority, even in my own household, that you know, and, and I don't know why I never, like, I remember talking to my dad and being like, you can't say things like that. You can't call people that. And I remember from like a, a very young age. And again, like you, I, I felt sort of weird. Like what is different about me that I, this is not okay for me. And the interesting thing is all of my sisters grew up with the same ideas, you know, that, that we all, um, so I don't know if it was a generational thing that that we were starting to sort of awaken as people and and say these kinds of things are not okay or, you know, what the deal was. What I'm hearing you say is that it's important for every person in your class, no matter their age, no matter what they look like, no matter what they sound like, no matter where their background is from, to feel accepted and loved and like they see themselves in the classroom. Yes. Yes. And I would add one small addition to that, which is something that has been evolving for me and my understanding of this, as you said, it's always, it's always an evolution, but that when we do things in a way that 
we learn about multiple races or multiple nationalities or multiple whatever, then we also benefit the dominant group too. And I never realized that like, it is beneficial for me as a white person to learn about races that are not white. Right. And like that, sure. there's such a value add. And often when we talk about the language, like, I think I knew that, but I, I never thought about it in terms of how we talk about it. Right. We talk about it as if it is just for students who are like BIPOC students or something, right. Like we don't talk about it. Like it's valuable for white people when we're talking mm -hmm. about race at least. Um, and it totally is. So I would just add that piece. I that is, I'm so glad you said that because that's something I really had never thought about either. And I will tell you that my children, my own children grew up in um, South Florida and in the county that I taught in, because I taught music there as well, there were 72 languages spoken and I saw children from all walks of life. And I felt so blessed to, first of all, have taught in a community where I got to see children from all walks of life because I feel like it made me a better teacher and it made me a better person. And my own children are accepting of everybody. Like, I feel like I'm very accepting of people, but I think that they have surpassed me in their like they do not see color and they do not see differences. And they have met and been friends with people from all walks of life. And sometimes, especially in my generation, you know, when a person describes another person, they'll describe them, this descriptor will be a black person, or, you know, they, they use a descriptor instead of just saying my friend, Sam. And my boys, they just like when I meet somebody, I'm sometimes surprised that, oh, this is a person um, of minority because they do not differentiate. They do not. So I feel like um, what you're saying is so valid that we really um, it, it, it's advantageous for us as well to, you know, to teach people um, from different walks of life to learn about people from different walks of life. You know, I think that's, I think that's really important. Yeah. And I think if I can just add a real, a real quick yes. piece. Okay. Yes. So I think that the idea of like, um, not seeing color is another piece that like has, has my understanding has kind of, I can't remember now, of course I'm missing the scholar's name, but there is this kind of, um, like racial awareness, progression that mm -hmm. like is like steps for, I think there's steps for like white folks and then steps for people of color. Um, but like one of them, I think that the don't see color is like a, a step on there. And then the next step is like that we, we do see color and, um, in, in a, in a lot of cases, the students who are black or brown students, for example, will say, if you don't see color, you don't see me. And so to be able to see mm -hmm. the color of, of people's skin and not treat it as something bad. Like one of the things I viscerally remember being at the Thanksgiving dinner table, which Thanksgiving is another thing we get on but, but thinking about um, my Nana, who was just saying like, uh, she was trying to describe someone and she, she used black and it was a question of like, why is that person's race relevant to this conversation? Sometimes race is relevant, but what, like you're saying, right? Like when mm -hmm. it's relevant or not, is like a really right. interesting thing. And, but she whispered the word black as if it was bad. Right. And so thinking about like, we don't see color sometimes can come off like that, where it's like, you don't mm -hmm. see my full experience, 
that has been such a learning for me. Um, I think because I definitely grew up with the messaging that like, we're not supposed to see color. And then it's like, oh, but we do. And that's part of the navigating the dynamics that are really complex. And to have Mm -hmm. students have to work through that and navigate that. It's like, if we could do that well and navigate all those complexities in school, we have so much less to unlearn as adults that I feel like I'm constantly unlearning things. I, I agree. I agree. And it's funny. Um, I, I had two visuals as you were talking. One of them was, um, oh my gosh, I can't think of the name of the movie. You'll, as soon as I say it, you're going to see it. I see you. What is that movie? The, oh, I don't know. They, one of the things that they say to each other is I see you. And I, that really kind of, as you were saying that that's what I was thinking about. And now I've lost the other one, so we won't worry about that. But <laughs> as, as music teachers, how can you help us to, obviously, um, you know, we want to be inclusive. And what I'm hearing a lot more about right now is how can we be inclusive, not just in uh, during special holidays, you know, like um, to, to bring out um, all your jazz and all your African-American musicians and that sort of thing in February. And, um, you know, to emphasize um, Black Lives Matter in June for Juneteenth. And, and you know, those obviously are valid celebrations, but I'm hearing a lot about we need to be inclusive all the time and not just during those holidays. So can you help us with what that looks like? Oh my gosh, such a good point, Jeanette. Oh my God, I'm glad you brought that up because that is that is it, right? Like, I think it's like holidays are fine and they become like kind of check the boxy if we don't do it all the time, right? It feels like service right. level. Yeah, so I think, I think really uh, centering the voices of if you do have students or families who are like representative of different communities, being able to invite. And I think the invitation part of that is critical, um, invite, but not expect that students take on the work of like teaching us or teaching the class, but invite that wisdom and that brilliance in. So if there is some sort of like music that students can bring from, like, I, I used to teach in, um, a school where students had recently immigrated to the United States. So it was like from your home country, if you want to bring in music, you can bring in music. And if you would like to teach a dance about that, you can teach it, you know, like whatever it was. Yeah, it was, oh my gosh, I have so many videos. (laughs) They're so amazing. Um, Me trying to do dance, that is embarrassing. Um, But yeah, thinking about doing that, one of the frameworks I think that makes it really tangible or at least tangible in planning is Dr. Goldnassar Muhammad. She has her book, Cultivating Genius was her first one and then Unearthing Joy was her second one. So she has this framework where she talks about basically how to do culturally and historically responsive education, which I think we, we talk about that as like this broad concept. And then there's like four different versions of definitions of it. And it's like, what does this mean? And she breaks it down in this beautifully, like just justice centered way. So what she did was she studied black literary societies in history. And she was like, what did they do well? Because despite all of the oppression, despite all of the, you know, barriers, there was such genius cultivated here. What, why, you know, like what was going on? And she came up with five pursuits. Um, Two of them, I think we do all the time. It kind of like the knowledge, like what are we content wise learning? And then the skills, what are we practicing? I think teachers do that just kind of naturally. But the Mm -hmm. three I love that are last used are identity, criticality, and joy. And so these three things, she says to ask every lesson, 
am I giving students an opportunity to learn about themselves and others? So that's identity. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a really good question to ask, like in each musical selection, right? Like are students learning about themselves and someone else? Or like, maybe that's to ask as like a unit, right? So out of like every three selections, is there like three different identity groups represented or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, criticality is like, do I engage students in conversations about identifying injustices and then not just talk about the bad stuff, but like, how do we help eradicate those injustices, right? Like how do we help make, yeah, our community, it could be hyper-local, it could be our classroom, it could be our school, but it could also be like, you know, our town or our state, like how do we make things better? Mm -hmm. Um, And then joy. And I think that usually what I say to joy for like a classroom teacher of like a history class or something is to to actually partner with the music teacher. So I think the joy is there, right? The joy is in the music. And there are so many amazing playlists. Like sometimes it might just be like, oh, I wasn't aware of like this genre or I wasn't aware of this particular artist and the artist's story. And there's so many playlists that exist on like Spotify and stuff that have been curated that can go with different things. I think teaching hard history has like several around the civil rights movement and stuff um, that are just kind of already out there. And I, and I love the idea of art as joy. And so both the creation of joy, students themselves creating joy and creating music themselves, but also studying the joy in music from different groups, I think would be really cool. Definitely. I love that. And I, I love that you said joy, even, you know, because that's one of my big pushes as a music teacher is I want my students to leave my classroom going, that was the most fun part of my week. And I want to experience that same joy. And I think that as teachers, um, we are lucky as music teachers that we, we sort of have an advantage over a classroom teacher in that we can kind of spread that joy with music, but also musicians tend to be very, um, what's the right word? We're very structured. Like we, we have our classical music and we have our, you know, our way of doing things and our way of teaching things. And I think people are starting to get away from that and, and starting to really include more of the student voice into the classroom. But I think that more of that needs to be done in all areas of education, because if you include student choice and you include student voice in everything you're doing, first of all, your students are gonna be much more on board with whatever you're doing. And second, they're gonna be more excited. And it doesn't matter if you're teaching math or you're teaching social studies or art or music or PE, even if they don't, they're not like a music person. Cause I hear that all the time. Oh, Miss Shori, I'm not a music person. And I'm like, okay, that's great. I'm not a PE person, but you know what? I can find joy in exercise. So, you know, I love that idea of, of just finding the joy in everything you do. And, and I'm hoping we'll have to go back and link all of these, um, these resources that you're sharing. So what would like, we tend to, as as music teachers, especially elementary teachers, we like to work in a theme. So how can we combine, um, for example, Black History Month, but let's say that, um, you know, we've got our, our Thanksgiving stuff and we've got, or, or our fall 
festival fall stuff. We've got our, our Halloween stuff. You know, we've got our, it's easy to, to work in a theme. How can we still add that the different cultures and, and the different areas of walks of life, the, where, what every student wants to see, you know, because I know I have um, two students from Brazil that, that I taught this year. And at one point we um, played some music in Portuguese and I was, they were like so excited. So, uh, you know, I want to include more of that. How do I make that happen? I love this question so much. And I'm so excited for you to be on my podcast because I feel like we'll do an example of that. And so Yay. I will send you that. Maybe that could be an episode on your show. Oh, but good. I think this this is exactly like where I get my joy is like thinking about this stuff. So I think one of the things is to think about the themes. So instead of necessarily attaching them to a holiday or, a, or kind of like a, a season or anything, it might be um, like, for example, it could be, um, I'm just thinking of our, uh, um, presentation for our conference session, like, uh -huh. right. It could be, how does music express emotion, right? Like that could be a theme. And then you could go into any kind of music, any genre of music, but you're having maybe even students select, like when you're feeling X, what is the music you listen to? Or here is the song. What does this make you feel right? Or like for our session, what we're doing is connecting current events and experience of that and make your own music that mm -hmm. emulates the emotion that you're feeling around this current event. And so I think thinking about themes differently and maybe themes in relation to identity, criticality, and joy. Um, so it could even be like, um, a theme of identity, right? So what, music makes you feel the most like yourself or something, or what music is most emblematic of America and all of its diversities, like, or, or something, you know, like it could mm -hmm. be a way to kind of tap into a bunch of different genres without kind of locking yourself into a particular, you know, season or holiday or, or group of people. It mm -hmm. could be that the question is about the human experience in some way, and then how music connects to that. And then you have a bunch of options open up for students to kind of specialize in whatever type of music they're interested in bringing in, um, or to be able to suggest some options that the whole class does. Those are just my initial thoughts, but I'd love to brainstorm with you. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I love that because, you know, that's been a puzzle for me because it's easy to, you know, okay. Like I said, we've got, we've got fall and we've got Halloween and we've got Thanksgiving and, uh, but then there's, you know, we're, we're starting to in education sort of pull away from, you know, you said before about Thanksgiving that don't get me started there. Right. <laughs> um, so we're starting to sort of pull away from some of those as maybe not appropriate, you know, like some of the music that, that um, some of the folk music that is just as mu music teachers were finding it's, it's not cool to teach some of this music that we've taught year after year after year. And it's a very fine line to walk, especially for us as music teachers and musicians that, you know, these are, these are things that we've taught and we've thought were valid learning experiences. And now we're finding, no, that the meaning behind the music is not good. And, and um, the ideas and, and, so 
it's it's kind of a really puzzling place, which is one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the podcast was to, you know, sort of explore that. So if you could maybe speak to where can we find some resources to help us sort of wade through all of that? Yes. So I think, are you speaking to, I know you're, you're talking about like the meaning behind them and, and things that you used to teach not being great. Is that around like cultural appropriation versus appreciation and that kind of dynamic? A little bit of that and a little bit of like some of the folk songs that we teach are inappropriate because we've, we've now found that they made fun of a certain um, race of people, or they made fun of slavery or, you know, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, of course, but you know what I'm saying? So, so there's both and cultural appropriation is a whole other ball of wax that is so hard to navigate, but maybe, you know, we don't have time in, in our small podcast here, but, but maybe you can um, share some resources and I'll link them in the show notes that music teachers could just kind of delve further where they want to. Yes. Okay. Let's see. What is the short answer for this? Um, So I will say that one of the things, and I'm going to pull up a list of resources here that I'm going to talk about too. Um, But one of the things that I do, if I'm unfamiliar with something is I immediately go to Google Mm -hmm. and I will just be like, I will type in words like cultural appropriation, this song or something, you know, like, because typically there will be someone who has written something and then I can read it and then get a sense of like, okay, where do I, where do I fit in? Or what's my decision after having that information and that perspective, one of my kind of lines in the sand or however you say that is for me, like I never wanted to, for example, micromanage my students' decisions about like the music they listen to or or anything like that, because I didn't see it as my place, but I did see like, my students' language or music choices impacting other students in my class. And so what I would say is our goal, like our whole being as as a group here is that we never want to infringe upon the dignity or the rights or the sense of belonging of any student. And so if there's any student that says that they don't feel comfortable, or if there's any um, one out there in the community that has said that something makes them uncomfortable, then I will default to like, we won't do that. Or if we will, if we are doing it because it's like something that is curricularly mandated or something, then we'll do it in the context or with a lot of context building of like, here, this, this is like, there's a lot going on here. And these are the different perspectives around this. Um, And we just want to engage in conversation. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to do it like uncritically. Um, But one of the things that I constantly, like, I think your point earlier is just so profound. It's like, we are constantly learning and feeling like we know nothing. The more we learn, like, yes. (laughs) So what I try to do is just have a constant like influx of information to me from people that do not hold the same identities that I do. And that just gives me so much more of a sense um, as kind of like a baseline of like things to think about or perspectives that people may hold that I otherwise wouldn't know. And so one of those is code switch. I'm a big podcast listener. So that that, that is, I am as well. (laughs) Okay, cool. And we're on one. So I'm hoping listeners are too. Right. Um, Code switch is amazing. They do a lot around race and culture and like current events. And so that is something that like 
I was thinking Juneteenth, right? We're in the month of June. You mentioned Juneteenth. They had two episodes, I think one in 2021 and one in 2022 on just Juneteenth. And it helped me make so much sense of it. Um, and they had two hosts who identify as black who were talking about this and even just not being from the South, they were talking about how they felt disconnected from the holiday as well to a degree because they're from the North, right? And there's like all these identity markers. And I was like, this is fascinating. Like it was just so interesting for me to hear that perspective. Um, Pod Save the People is another one that is just all about current events and like underreported news that has to do with justice. So like, that's another one that I just constantly listen to. Um, on the Issues is a feminist feminist one. It's from Ms. Magazine. It's a podcast they started, I think last year. Um, there's a bunch, but I think those are really helpful. And then there's also a bunch that are actually like, text the kind of like social studies -y. I'm very much in the social studies realm, but then they have filters when you go into their like resource libraries that you could filter for things like art or music or something like that, oh, that are cool. interesting. Yeah. So I think I'm trying to remember which one specifically, I think learning for justice, facing history and then education all have some kind of like art or music filter. Mm -hmm. Um, so those are good as well. Um, and I, I think it's just really cool to just have those in your back pocket to be able to be like, okay, so I'm presented with this new song or I'm looking for this new song and like, I'm not sure where to start. You can like start with either those like resource libraries that I just listed, or like, I just want kind of the constant inundation of like being in these circles of conversation. I'm going to listen to these podcasts each week and just kind of have those, um, to build up kind of my base of justice conversation. So when we're talking about cultural appropriation. I, I want to have a better understanding of what that means. So I'm going to tell you what I think, and I want to know, am I, am I right? Or am I partly right? So my feeling is that at this point, if I'm going to say, teach a song from Columbia, I'm not just going to teach that song. I'm going to give a little bit of background about perhaps the, the culture behind it, if I can find out where it came from, like specifically, if I can find out a little bit about how it was written, why it was written. So to, to just not just teach the music, but to bring in as much information and, you know, as music teachers, we get 30 minute classes. So there's not a lot we can do, but to bring in just a little bit of information about the song so that it, it gives the students kind of a feel for where it came from and the history behind it. Is that kind of like what we're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. I think that is, that is huge. And so anytime that you can do that, um, another kind of additional piece would be like, if you have, um, a video of like someone performing it, that is Colombian, like that's a great place to start too. So you're kind of like learning from the people who it belongs to. And then you're mm -hmm. kind of like, okay, we're going to, we're going to work through it together and kind of positioning yourself as like learner and teacher, I think is an interesting place to, to be as well. Um, but yeah, I would 100% agree that the background and context that you're putting in, like the research that you're doing to learn yourself and then share with students is a huge piece of it. Yeah. Okay. And is there, is there anything missing from what I'm talking about? Like, is there, is there anything additional that I should add? I would say, I don't know if it's additional that you should add, but one thing that I think is interesting is the dynamic specifically when we're thinking about like anti-Black racism in the United States. So that's a very specific type of thing we're mm -hmm. talking about, but I think about how Black music and culture and, um, 
you know, language and attire, like clothing is, has been very much appropriated by the like dominant, like white culture, um, in a way that kind of often when we dig into the context, it's like, so all of this stuff that black folks have been kind of like demonized for, or, you know, whatever, like it wasn't cool or not necessarily cool, but it wasn't like appropriate, right. Or whatever, all of these things, it wasn't classical music. It wasn't a a professional attire, you know, whatever it was. Um, now when white people do it, it's to kind of like tap into the sense of cool, like, or like I am cool. And so there's like this benefit that comes with that for white people Mm -hmm. that like black people barely get or got, you know what I mean? Like it's like stolen with, without kind of like understanding that deeper context. So we literally, my partner and I just had this conversation. So we have a 15 month old and we saw this child at the park who was wearing kind of like a gold chain, like a thick gold chain. And, and he was like, Oh, do we want our child wearing, wearing a thick gold chain? And we were talking about it from first, from the standpoint of like expensive jewelry and stuff. And then I was like, but also from the standpoint of like cultural appropriation, if this is something that like is part of a community or racial identity that he doesn't have because he's this like little white kid, you know, like it's important for him to recognize that his choice in wearing that when, when he gets to, this is, we're talking when he gets to be able to choose things, right? but like, he should know that. And so obviously that would be toned down for like a four-year-old or whatever, to be able to talk to him about it in terms of its simplicity. Cause obviously it's a complex thing, but I do think that that is possible to be able to say like your friend, cause we live in a more racially diverse neighborhood than where I grew up um, is to be able to say like, you know, your friend, you know, in your class might feel some kind of way about that, uh, that necklace that you wearing that necklace. Like you should, you should talk to them about it or you should ask them, or, you know, we should at least consider that perspective. And I think when you have racial diversity or any kind of diversity, um, whether it's religious or linguistic, you have that opportunity to tap into like a real life person that you know and and mm-hmm. ask um, mm-hmm. when you have that foundation built. So I, I wouldn't say just go talk to a random stranger or someone, right? Like that that's not cool. Um, but I think that is something that I try to do on, on Google, right? If you don't have that person immediately sitting next to you in the moment when you're like, oh, I have this question, like Google is totally a wealth of information that already exists. And so I think to go back to my original point, I guess, circling back there, that Google is a wonderful source of information. If you are like, I think something's missing, or maybe I should do this one other thing. Like typically Mm -hmm. the first couple articles will give you all the things you might need to know. Right, right. I'm I'm glad you said that. Go to Google first because, <laughs> you know, that's usually what I'll do, but I don't know. I feel like there's just so much confusion about so many things and, you know, again, as a a white woman, I I want to be careful. I want to be inclusive. I want to make sure that that all of my children feel seen and heard and and my friends and the people you know as as my audience is growing i want to make sure that i'm inclusive and i i'm doing right by people and i loved what you said about just ask the question you know the somebody that that you know ask the question because i think that goes a long way too towards sort of showing how you feel and, and how you're, you're trying to do your best, you know? Yep. And I think one of the things that that makes me think of is just progress over perfection, right? Like there are 
so many teams that I've worked with where they've created this new like anti-racist curriculum that's beautiful and awesome. And they're like, well, what if we don't do it perfectly? Like, what if we actually upset this one kid in this one lesson? And it's like, we definitely don't want to cause more harm. But if students are already telling you that like they don't see themselves in the curriculum, like progress is better than waiting for perfection. And then you're still repeating the same like old white dude stuff, you know, <laughs> like, I right, think- right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we're going to so, make mistakes. <laughs> one more question. Um, cause we could go on all day. I feel like this has been such an amazing conversation and I've learned so much and hopefully everyone listening has learned a ton and we will, um, share your contact information at the end. I'll put it on the show notes, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I wanted to know, we teach very young children. My audience, um, teaches, I mean, figure, you know, from three years old on usually, how do we, how do we help? how do we figure out if there is someone who's offended or who's not seeing themselves? Like, how do we know if it's a wee little person? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, wow. I love this question. So I think one is, and this is foundational to literally every coaching thing that I do is like, you want to co-create class agreements. So even if they're three, like there's some language that, you know, you can kind of think about I think that is huge when you can have this list that is not just teacher says these are the rules, but like, how do we want to be in community with each other? So I have some elementary sample agreements that I can share um, if that's helpful yes, as a starting point. Definitely. Um, so I just reworked these because they were very high school-y because that was my, my background. Um, but now like when we, these are sample agreements for when we disagree. So really any time of discussion, but also like sometimes we disagree on things and that's okay. And mm-hmm, how do we talk to mm-hmm. each other? So often we'll say things like, um, you know, we want to respect one another, but it's like, well, what does that mean? So this is kind of the next level down of what does that mean or how does that happen? So you might ask, what do you mean by that? Or if your words hurt someone, you can say, I'm sorry. And so literally the agreement is if your words hurt someone, apologize or say, I'm sorry, right? right. Like so basic, even right. my like 15 month old is learning the, the symbol for like the uh, ASL sign for sorry. Love it. Um, when you feel big emotions, you might put your hand on the part of your body that feels uncomfortable. So just teaching them to notice like my stomach hurts or like my that. heart is beating fast. Um, when you feel big emotions, take a deep breath and count to five before acting or speaking. Like mm-hmm. just little tiny things that are like, we're going to pause, think about ourselves, identify, like think about social emotional stuff we talk about, right? Like, how are we doing? But then how are other people doing? And do I want to say that thing that I want to immediately say, or do I want to let someone know I was harmed? So we had, um, even in high school, we had a little hand motion that was like, or no, we didn't have a hand motion. Sorry. We said, ouch, just the word ouch when oh. someone was harmed. And so that could be something that a three-year-old might say, ouch. And like, maybe mm-hmm. they don't even want to explain it, but now we're cued in like, oh, we're going to follow up with that student after class because something mm-hmm. was ouchy, you know, <laughs> like something hurts. Um, and, and I think that's a really nice, like very fast way to be able to say that you could also have like a little, you know, box or something in your room or have them say after class, you know, ouch. And like, I want to talk about this thing, but I think that's like, if someone can say something in one word or have a hand motion for it, that would be great. I love the simplicity of that because as you started explaining, I was like, okay, how are we going to do this for every class? Cause like I have 26 or I had 26 classes and I, at one point had over 50 classes. I was like, how am I doing that? But then, you know, you went into that very simple, 
um, that anybody can do. I love it. All right. So I want to go ahead and wrap it up because, like I said, we could talk all day here. Where can people get in touch with you if they want to hear more? And is there anything else you'd like to share with us from that perspective? Um, I think that is good on my, my part. I think being able to kind of as a summary, co-create agreements with your class, invite stories and connections from students that relate to identity, criticality, and joy when we're selecting music or planning our lessons. And also creating a culture where we can talk to each other and center feelings are really like, I think the big three things that I wanted to, to talk about. And we did. So check. <laughs> and then where <laughs> Where to find me? I think the best place is if you're a podcast listener, which I'm sure you are because you're listening to one now, uh, it's time for teachership podcast on all the podcast places. And then lindsaybethlyons.com is my website and all the things, including the podcaster house there. And Jeanette, you and I can maybe touch base about what might be a helpful free resource because I'd love to share with you some of the things we talked about. So maybe oh, we'll put great. together something for, for the group. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be great. Well, Thank you so much. I hope that my audience learned as much as I did because I learned a ton just talking to you. And I, I'm just amazed by, by the amount of knowledge you have in this area. And I'm so thankful to have been able to share everything you have to offer to, um, to the people listening. If you got some great tips and tidbits that are going to help you become a happy music teacher, I would be so thankful if you'd leave me a review. Thanks so much for your time. Well, that's all I have for you today. But before I go, let me remind you, keep learning, keep growing, and keep being fabulous you. Fabulous you.